from KQED. Political maps survive, vaccines prevail, and teachers prepare for a fight. And, and, oh, yeah, a former state senator pleads guilty to corruption. How's that for a week of political news? This is our California Politics Podcast for the weekend in July 3rd, along with Anthony York and Marisa Lagos. I'm John Myers. And we got to admit here, right, guys, I mean, some weeks we have struggled to find political (laughs) news to chew on. It's almost too much this week. It's a veritable cornucopia, right? It is. And, I mean... It's been fun, especially for a short week. You know, it's a holiday week. We, we just had to jam it all in, I guess, in the media. I've even been roused from my undisclosed location to uh, to uh, <laughs> bless you both with my existence here. A very here. a very disclosed location. Oh, it was disclosed. And we, no, this is, oh, yeah. <laughs> we are appreciative of that. So let's dive in. Uh, our first topic on this week's podcast, because we got a lot to talk about, folks. Uh, California's congressional maps are not going anywhere. On Monday, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected this challenge that we've been watching to congressional maps uh, drawn by an independent commission. Now, we have to remember that case was out of Arizona. But, of course, as we've talked about on the podcast before, if Arizona's state legislators had gotten their way, uh, California's own redistricting commission would have likely been next. And the 53 congressional districts in California could have been redrawn by the legislature, which would have been fun for reporters, <laughs> but know. maybe not for everyone else. <laughs> John, I, I want to know you to know that George Skeleton at the L.A. Times agrees with you. <laughs> it would have been fun. at least entertaining. You guys need some new hobbies. I'm going <laughs> to just throw that out there. Would have been a summer of fun. But so tell me what you guys think. I mean, I got the sense from uh, some people around the state capitol, though, to this point, really of, of relief. I mean, redrawing the maps... You know, journalists might have wanted it. Some politicos might have wanted it. But it would have been this legal and political fight that I would argue could have eclipsed a lot of other things on their to-do list. I mean, I think Skelton said it very well. It saved Republicans from a disaster and Democrats from themselves, right? I mean, because this wasn't, even if in their heart of hearts they would have preferred to be drawing these congressional maps, it would have opened up a whole can of worms around yeah, what the figures they're using, are they outdated? And then just this issue of gerrymandering. I mean, the, the public has spoken twice on this issue. I think that it really could have just veered us into some dangerous political territory and also, you know, opened up questions about our initiative process, which is kind of a cornerstone of California democracy. Getting into the the opinion um, from the court, 5-4 uh, majority, nothing terribly surprising there. I think we've talked before about Anthony Kennedy playing an interesting role as the as the only guy on the court who understands the direct democracy process, the being a California native and having written a ballot measure when Ronald Reagan was governor. But Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote the um, wrote the majority opinion. A couple of things out of that that I thought we might want to talk about here briefly. So the whole question was, what is legislative power? Does the U.S. Constitution define it only as the legislature, the elected body in the domed building? Or is the legislative power being, uh, is it able to be uh, used by the voters, which of course it is in direct democracy? She wrote, You know, the precedent teaches that redistricting is a a legislative function, again, the broad term, the small l, I suppose, there, to be performed in accordance with a state's prescriptions for lawmaking, that states have that right, Right. and that the U.S. Constitution and its elections clause, quote, surely was not adopted to diminish a state's authority to determine its own lawmaking processes. Very much deferential to the states. On the other side, of course, and I think there's some interesting play here about about rights of states to make their own decisions, conservative, liberal, into the court, but we're, we're not the Supreme Court uh, podcast. And then Chief Justice John Roberts um, 
again, taking a very strict definition of what a legislature was. The Constitution contains 17 provisions, he said, referring to the legislature of a state, many of which cannot possibly be read to mean the people. But in the end, that was the losing argument. And, and again, to the practical political consideration here, um, there could have been not only redistricting, but I think, Marisa, to your point, there could have been other uh, electoral things that were in mix. People were saying maybe the top two primary would have to be taken yeah. out or something else where we had governed the rules about congressional elections um, outside of the actual legislature. And I know I know we're not the Supreme Court uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> podcast, but I think some of the parallels are interesting with the Obamacare decision, right? You have you have a, a block of three on the court. You have uh, Scalia, Alito, and Thomas that, that have adhere to this very strict uh, uh, reading of the Constitution and that, that it's sort of a verbatim, uh, you know, uh, document. And, and, and we saw that. I thought it was interesting that Robert switched, that he was with the majority on the Obamacare decision and, and the minority on the, uh, on the Arizona decision, because I think there are some parallels in, in sort of the, the intent and meaning and sort of strict construction versus loose construction reading of the Constitution. I agree. And I think this shows how in general, you know, not just people, you know, the, the justices on the Supreme Court, but how we interpret what their interpretation of the law is so political because you have right. the Republicans in Arizona challenging this. And then in California, most of the comments I saw from prominent Republicans was in support of the Supreme Court's decision, which right. was by the liberal justices. Um, and yeah, as you mentioned before, I think the state's rights question is kind of fascinating. I mean, I, I think that in a lot of other issues, you would see, you know, the other side, the more conservative side, stick up for that argument. Um, and yeah, I think to... You know, I think the majority had to be cognizant of what the, the the longer term implications of this and what sort of disarray this could have thrown both states into and yeah. in Obamacare as well. And, and it'll be interesting to see how this plays in other states, whether this leads to legislation being pushed in other states or states that have, uh, you know, direct democracy provisions, some sort of initiative system, whether we'll see more of these independent commissions popping up because, you know, I mean, I think Democrats nationally feel like, uh, you know, they keep they've won the popular vote uh, in three of the last four presidential elections, um, but you know, legis but because of gerrymandering and the way that that districts are drawn in some of these states, they've been in the minority in Congress, and and I think it's ironically, although this was seen as a blow for Republicans, uh, that that, that um, it'll it'll be interesting to see how the Democratic Party nationally uh, navigates going forward. Well, two things that come to mind for me out of this is is the um, the discussion about having voters weigh in on something big uh, nationally, uh, because not every state has the direct democracy process. And as somebody who grew up in one that didn't, but also has seen the voters try to weigh in on an amendment to their state's constitution, which was on same-sex marriage. I mean, interesting we're talking about that. That power that conservatives have used across the country, right, perhaps would liberals or other progressive activists look for some way to change the rules about political map drawing, which has been so partisan and gerrymandered in so many states. But the, the, the real concluding thought for me out of this, if I could, was just how times have changed. You saw both parties very skeptical of the redistricting commission when first pitched in 2006, 2007, and then the 2008 uh, ballot measure that uh, Schwarzenegger championed and others, and then, of course, the uh, subsequent one in 2010. Lots of hesitation, lots of worry, lots of 
almost disdain from some corners of the political parties, everyone was singing the same thing this week, weren't they? Oh, yes, we love the Independent Redistricting Commission. No one would say, eh, we still don't like it. I mean, that has gone away completely. Yeah. I mean, they've all, well, and this is a legislature that has all been elected now under these new rules. I mean, right. some of them were also elected under the old rules, but every one of these members now has stood for election under the new rules. So, uh, hey, it worked for them. So, of course, they're going to like it. Yeah, I'm going to be a little more cynical and just say I think they know where the court of public opinion is and that coming yeah. out against this is not going to be a popular move for, uh, from a constituent perspective. So I think that, you know, and we've discussed this a little, that quietly some some folks were a little bit more excited about the opportunity to potentially redraw these lines. But, you know, they, lots of potential congressmen and women. Exactly. In our <laughs> <laughs> well, let's stay on court of public opinion as we go to topic two on this week's California politics podcast, the, the final chapter, at least in the state house, and that's what we have to talk about, for the effort to force more school children vaccinations. So Governor Jerry Brown uh, signed Senate Bill 277 on Tuesday, hours after it landed on his desk. And I think we've talked about it here on the podcast over the last couple of weeks that we thought there would be fast action, and there was. Uh, governors sometimes write a signing message when the bill is controversial, and this one was. So the governor wrote this signing message, and I wanted to read a quote from it because I do think it it is the the last part of where he thought the the and he, he praised both sides. He praised the opponents of the bill as well, but he said, "quote The science is clear: vaccines dramatically protect children against a number of infectious and contagious diseases. While it's true that no medical intervention is without risk, the evidence shows that immunization powerfully benefits and protects the community." So clearly. The governor saw the bill as the right thing to do. It is out there. It will take the force of law next year. And then it's not quite over in the court of public opinion, it seems like. Hugh Rob Schneider. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, a, it, was, it was an entertaining week, right? We had um, Tim Donnelly, former assemblyman, who we all know and I would say probably miss in the Capitol Press Corps for, to some extent. Uh, <laughs> for his antics, for his uh, comments, for, for his uh, colorfulness? Uh, yeah, let's say his outspoken nature. Um, yeah, he immediately filed a referendum. So I, I'm really fascinated by that. I mean, well, I guess to back up, it was interesting to me, yes, not just that the governor signed this so quickly, but that he, you know, he issued the signing message. I don't think we were that surprised, as we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, one of his top advisors came out as you know, in her own capacity, but spoke at a public hearing in favor of the bill. That was kind of a, a big signal. Um, and but yeah, I think that um, the governor perhaps, you know, wanted to get this signed into law and, and on the books, but also like a lot of the proponents in the state house, just wanted to get the issue done with, which Mr. Donnelly has ensured it is not. So I'm really fascinated by this issue that if they get the 365,000 plus signatures in the next 90 days, um, the measure wouldn't take place until after the November 2016 election, right. which would in effect really undercut this this measure because what's supposed to happen is next July, schools are supposed to start reviewing vaccination records and they only ask for them at the start of kindergarten and seventh grade and preschool too. So. Another year of kindergartners, you know, is really another seven years of, of, in that class. Um, so I think that there's some interesting questions. I mean, polls have shown a lot of support for this measure in the public, but it almost I think the next big question isn't even whether it can pass. It's just whether they can get it right. on the ballot. Right. And as a political as a political force, Tim Donnelly is not, you know, I mean, he tried to referend the Dream Act as well. But what makes it interesting is 
all of the sort of the Hollywood support or Hollywood yeah, that's what I wanted to talk about exactly. And you know, you saw Jim Carrey tweeting this week. Rob Schneider has been outspoken outspoken about this issue, and so to qualify to qualify those, I mean, again, maybe not major forces in California politics, but when you're talking about trying to qualify a referendum, you know, is there a million dollars or one and a half million, whatever it would take, from from this community, um, this this very diverse community of white people that opposes this bill. I think it's so interesting <laughs> that it's like, well, it's not cla- it's not class-based. It really is. Like, you look at the opposition to 277, it was all different kinds of white people, which I... Yeah, but having kind of said that, look at the polling that the Public Policy Institute of California put out in May, where you saw some of the subcategories of, of Californians and, and their feelings and concerns. There was a healthy skepticism and concern among Latinos in that sample yeah. uh, about vaccines and others. I mean, I, I don't dispute what you're saying, that, that the face of this became uh, more Caucasian than anything else. But, I mean, it has the potential to be an interesting political moment if it ever got any real steam. And I think your point about yeah. Hollywood, yeah, I wanted to, to, to point that out. So two stars in particular, I saw tweeting about it after the governor signed it on Tuesday night, Kirstie Alley. Uh, who wrote this tweet that said, uh, in part, my heart is breaking and ashamed of our governor. And then Jim Carrey, who has gotten a lot of attention. But Jim Carrey's tweet, I mean, was just classic Twitter. California Gov, I think he meant governor, says yes to poisoning more children with mercury and aluminum in mandatory vaccines. He misspelled mandatory. This corporate fascist must be stopped. (laughs) And I mean... Different kind of mercury. There's a good explainer in Slate this week about science. About science. I, science. I know. Yeah, you know. Uh, but if you know. were going to find people with money, right. I mean, right. and, I mean, and of all the places Tim yeah. Donnelly does not seem like he fits in would be Hollywood. But. Exactly. Well, and I think that's the key issue here. I think th- I, if I were, you know, betting on all of this, I would say I don't think it's unlikely that they can get on the ballot if, if, if these people who are so outspoken about it, you know, kind of put their money where their mouth is. However... When the rubber meets the road and there's actually an opponent campaign to keep SB 77, which is always the confusing things about referendums. But, you know, I think, you know, to your point, John, about Latinos, like I would guess that for some of um, the sort of non-core folks who are maybe a little bit more undecided or just a little concerned that the the proponents of vaccinations could probably have success with a pretty... uh, you know, robust education and outreach campaign, but that's not going to happen in the next 90 days. It's right. just up to the opponents of vaccination. So, you know, I th- it'll be, I think, two different sort of debates in a way. But real quickly, I mean, I think another, you know, what's interesting about this, if it is only going to be on the 2016 ballot, there's another issue that's going to be on the 2016 ballot where you also see some split between Latinos and, and other Democrats since 75 to 80% of Latinos are Democrats, and that's pot legalization. And That's so right. you might have these two issues on the ballot where there are some some rifts between the sort of the Democratic establishment and the Latino establishment, which I think, you know, might be as a subtext to the 2016 election could be an interesting thing to watch. Well, and 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 the other part, too, just the practical part is that if someone wants to put this on the ballot to uh, referend it, I guess is the proper way to say it. Yep. They do not have a lot of time to think about that. I mean, every time that there has been either a, um, a referendum measure that was successful at getting on the ballot or successful period, they had to be ready to act immediately, like the bag ban, the plastic bag ban folks. Right. They were ready to start gathering signatures because they knew that 90-day clock is incredibly mm-hmm. fast. And to the point of how much it costs, that only exacerbates the cost because yep. the signatures have to come in so quickly. So 
Jim Carrey, Kirstie Alley, you're going to have to open your wallets because you're the people here that would have to fuel it. Otherwise, I mean, it's a great political podcast topic. It's not a real <laughs> true political moment, I guess. But So let's, um, let, let's pause here in the California Politics Podcast for this week's sampling of smaller items, what we call our political side dish, the little quick samples. Uh, I'm going to pick at random here. The audience doesn't know this, but I'm in Sacramento and Anthony and Marisa are in San Francisco, so I can't see either of you. I'm thinking of a number. No, I'm Well, geez, now they uh, do, John. <laughs> well, now they do, right. <laughs> but I just wanted to say that it was purely random that I'm picking Anthony. Anthony York of the Grizzly Bear Project, who you can find on Twitter at Anthony York 49 What you got this week? I uh, got a little Junipero Serra action. Um, there's <laughs> a, <laughs> there's, a, uh, there's a, uh, a resolution that has cleared the state Senate, uh, pushed by Senator Ricardo Lara, to take one of uh, California's two statues in Congress uh, uh, and have it replaced. There's a, a statue of Junipero Serra there now, Father Serra. Now, uh, Father Sarah is on the verge of being canonized by Pope Francis. Um, our other statue is Ronald Reagan, by the way. And Senator Lara wants to replace the Sarah statue with Sally Ride. Um, this sort of speaks to... Now, the resolution has been shelved out of deference to the Pope, who's coming to canonize Sarah and coming to visit the United States in September. But I just thought it was interesting because this Pope... First of all, I mean, this Pope and this governor, I mean, the, the reign of the Jesuits, right? And then... Uh, and that this pope has become such a liberal hero mm-hmm. uh, in so many ways on his recent his recent comments on climate change and uh, his focus on income inequality and poverty has made him a real champion to the left in a way that a lot of other popes are not. And here's an issue where there's a real rift between elements of the Democratic Party in California um, and the and Latino Catholic Democrats uh, and the pope. And and so. Um, this issue has been shelved for the year, but uh, Senator Laura said he will take it up again in the next legislative year after the Pope's visit, presumably after the canonization process has stopped. I guess, does that make it easier or harder to remove the statue of a saint in favor of an hmm. astronaut? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, question. I find, I find, yeah, the logic behind this delay sort of hilarious. Right. But, but I, I wasn't raised Catholic, so maybe... Well, with the resolution, that, does the governor, I, I, I always forget this, the governor does not have to weigh in on a resolution, right? No. I so, don't think so. But the other part is like, I mean, haven't you given it more attention by delaying it? I mean, like now, like it actually becomes more, more of a story, right? I don't know. It's, you're right. I mean, I'm not sure what the delay does, but I got a feeling somebody will want to keep talking about this one. But um, let's, let's try Marisa. Marisa Lagos, my ca- colleague at KQED News, you can find on Twitter at M Lagos. What's, uh, what's the side dish this week? Well, I was fascinated by this uh, attorney general report comes out every year looking at crime rates. And it found that last calendar year, 2014, almost every violent and property offense uh, category that they they track decreased. So essentially, the homicide rate is down over 4% statewide. The robbery rate and property crime rate were down about 10%. Um, And of course, I'm interested in this through the lens of politics. There's been a lot of discussion among folks who oppose Governor Jerry Brown's 2011 realignment plan, which shifted responsibility for a lot of low-level offenders from state prison and parole down to the county jail and probation level. Um, And and then again, last year, we we passed Prop 47, which sort of lowered the threshold for a lot of crimes, making a lot of felonies misdemeanors. This doesn't really capture 47 because that took effect in the last two months of the year. But there's been a lot of discussion 
I mean, the hardcore opponents of realignment said there would be like blood in the streets. But a lot of other folks in law enforcement and who had concerns were very concerned about property crimes and and these, you know, more, you know, nonviolent offenses, although not to say property crimes can't be violent. But um, I just think this is interesting fodder for for the reform community, largely on the left, although we've seen some Republicans join it nationally, you know, to say that almost four years into this realignment plan that that things keep, you know, these rates keep going down. And I think in another year, it'll be really fascinating to see if that's true, even under 47. So um, the AG didn't comment. She's she's tried to stay very above the fray on this stuff now, especially, I'm sure, since she's running for Congress. Um, but you can bet these numbers are going to be used uh, by folks who support a realignment uh, again and again. Well, I was going to say, can't you see her talking about crime rate dropping in California as a candidate for the U.S. Senate as oh, the attorney yeah. general? Yes, absolutely. I just meant not necessarily yeah. through the lens of these initiatives. Um, although yeah. she may, you know, a lot of the people that pushed them were folks who worked for her at the attorney general's office in San Francisco and uh, who have deep ties to her and her campaign. So it, it, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out there. But also really in Sacramento, as these debates keep coming, you know, around these policies and whether they're working. So a final side dish from uh, from yours truly, John Myers, KQED News. I'm on Twitter at John Myers. And, and this one, I had a couple of different candidates for side dish. Maybe I get to bring one back later, though, then, then it's not really in the week's news. But uh, this one, I couldn't help myself. This is this nasty little fight between Sacramento's mayor, Kevin Johnson, and the press. So the short version of the story for people who don't live in Sacramento and follow every moment of this. Uh, Kevin Johnson, the mayor, is embroiled in a legal fight over his efforts to lead the uh, National Conference of Black Mayors. And he's been talking to his attorneys, and I think these are his attorneys, not the city's attorneys, that's important. He's been talking to his attorneys in that case through his own Gmail account. Where where have we ever heard of a, a politician <laughs> using private email for official business? Hmm, that's another podcast. Uh, trouble is, the city of Sacramento decided that it would have to release those emails to the press under the California Public Records Law because of there's this larger request about what's going on in the city that was made by news organizations in Sacramento. Now, the city claims that these emails aren't covered under attorney-client because it's not with the city's attorneys. It's the mayor's people somewhere else. The mayor, here at the end of the week, uh, has sued a weekly, the Sacramento News and Review, and is trying to get a restraining order against the city from releasing these emails. The Sacramento Bee has also weighed in on whether it wants the emails as well, et cetera, et cetera. Observation from a, a distance here, folks. Fighting with the press over transparency and disclosure I don't think makes you look very good, Not a good as look. a high-profile elected official. And Johnson is a guy who's rumored to have aspirations for other office yeah. in California, is in deep on this one. And I just This is a fascinating little story. Although it's an interesting legal question. I mean, attorney-client privilege shouldn't necessarily only relate to certain attorneys, arguably, right? I mean, I... I, I think know. the I think the threshold that the city of Sacramento is using is that that you know they don't have the discretion to block the emails because it's not a city of Sacramento issue. I mean, right. I'm not a lawyer, yeah. But again, you know, this use of private emails yeah. um, is is now in the forefront of another elected official, obviously a much smaller profile than Hillary Clinton. But but again, Johnson, you know, is picking a big fight with the press. Well, and that's the thing. I think it's how aggressive he's being, not necessarily the merits of the case that are that are the potential political liabilities here. So good luck, KJ. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> uh, yep. stay, stay tuned on that one. Uh, let's move on. Two final topics on this week's California Politics Podcast. We're going to try to shove them in all of the time. It's a lot of news this week, folks. Uh, this one, um, back to the U.S. Supreme Court briefly. 
Um, this one is one that I know we're going to talk about in the future. Uh, the court this week decided to accept a case to hear this fall that we're going to talk a lot about again. It's called Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association. Fundamental question here, if you haven't followed this one, is can the CTA, Teachers Union, require teachers to pay dues when a teacher may not support the CTA's objectives? Now, it's not so much a case about the dues that go to political campaigns because they supposedly split those out. But these are what are called agency fees uh, that are supposed to be for things like collective bargaining. Now, the plaintiffs are 10 California teachers. They argue that even collective bargaining money that's collected by the CTA uh, is unfair because collective bargaining is inherently political. It's unconstitutional to ask them for the money. And I don't think either of you would disagree with me, right? I mean, this goes to the heart of the CTA's power, not just political campaigns, but lobbying, bargaining. It's real muscle on the local and state level. I mean, the CTA is a big player. It's a big deal. Yeah, one of the biggest, uh, certainly on the uh, on the union side and on, on the Democratic side of the aisle, they're one of the biggest. And, you know, anything that impacts their ability to raise money uh, is, is going to have a dramatic impact, uh, not just on the CTA's future, but on the future of California politics as well. There's yeah, also this national. feeling that it could, yeah, and there's also this feeling that, it, well, national, but that it could bleed into other public employee unions, yep. that it's a, a, a nature of public employees um, and, you know, who has to be part of what. And we've seen the Supreme Court rule on other things. Like, remember the case with SEIU and the special fee they tacked on for Schwarzenegger's special election, and they had to pay that back. The Supreme Court ruled that they did it wrong. I mean, but this one, right, this one has large implications. And, and somebody asked me the other day where I would rank the CTA and the power structure of politics of California. First of all, what do you guys say? Where would you put them? Definitely top, top five. five. Definitely top five. Uh, I think it depends on the year. The I don't think you could, I put them I don't at the top think you would debate years. number one. Yeah. yeah. Depend, I mean, depending yeah. on the year, you know, there are certain groups that pop up from year to year that get active, but I think on a consistent basis. And on a broad basis, right? Yeah. I mean, they don't just focus on issues that impact their their specific, you know, education. Yeah. They're very active in general politics in issues like we're talking about right now about labor in general, yeah. the left. Legislative so. races, tax policy. Absolutely. Prop, you know, Prop 30, Prop, you know, um, the majority vote budget. I mean, all kinds of things. Yeah. You know, all kinds yeah, of we things. talked about it on um, on KQED's forum uh, program the other day. And, and I referenced this uh, great quote um, from a few years ago by Don Parada, the former leader of the state Senate. He was quoted in a newspaper piece looking at the CTA. And I love it. He called them uh, the fourth co-equal branch of state government. <laughs> I mean, and, and Parada yeah. sparred with them. We yeah. That's a, another podcast of that history. But I mean, I do think it goes to show that they have a lot of power. And again, I go back to not just campaigns, but their lobby and their presence. Yep. And so, any, as you said, Anthony, anything that changes their money structure is a, is a it's a big deal. Yeah, so. a couple of years ago, uh, Mike Mishak, my former colleague at the LA Times, did a, a, a nice look at CTA and their their that is the piece. In the capital. So, yep. That is the piece that uh, Mr. Parada was quoted in. So shout out to uh, Michael Mishak, who has at the National left Journal. us for greener at the National pastures. Journal. Yeah, yes, indeed. Yes. <laughs> so finally, on this week's California Politics podcast, Uncle Leland, as the FBI says he was known, um, former San Francisco State Senator Leland Yee. Uh, pleaded guilty on Wednesday to federal racketeering charges as part of an FBI investigation into a lot of things. Uh, illegal campaign <laughs> donations, allegations of weapon trafficking. Uh, I mean, the world of people with a long history of influence in San Francisco's Chinatown community. It was a big investigation. So Yi is going to be sentenced in October, but pleaded guilty 
to this racketeering charge, really serious charge. So, Marisa, we're going to ask you our San Francisco political pro here for yes. a moment. This case, to me, has always felt more local than state. I mean, not so much a reflection of the state capital culture than these allegations of what happens in uh, in the city by the bay. Yeah, because, I mean, in if you believe the FBI, that they really kind of stumbled across Senator Lee in this investigation of a, a broader sort of crime circle, organized crime in Chinatown involving the amazingly nicknamed Shrimp Boy Chow, Raymond Shrimp Boy Chow. Um, so they were looking into, you know, drugs and guns and, you know, racketeering and money laundering in Chinatown. Came across Keith Jackson, this uh, former school board president, political consultant type who was trying to help Leland retire his campaign debt. Um, and it turned into, yeah, this whole thing of, you know, Yi taking bribes and in exchange for votes and putting in good words with state agencies and essentially trying to launder money to retire this debt during while he ran for secretary of state. I mean, what's fascinating to me is that there's always been a sense in local politics, especially and it reared its head during the mayor's race that Leland ran in, that there was something dirty about him, that there was something in his past that you know, people who were on the other side of things wanted to dig up. And the people that worked for him were always very sure that there wasn't. There wasn't right. um, and, and, I, and, and I believe I know a lot of these people, they're still shocked and feel very betrayed and, and angry about this. Um, but, you know, there, it does raise questions. I mean, if, if you talk to the lawyers and, and people who might still sort of support, you know, at, at least in theory... Leland Yee, although his friends left quickly, that you know they'll say that this was a fishing expedition by the FBI, and that this wouldn't have happened if they hadn't gotten involved and sort of like, you know, made sort of made these opportunities for somebody who is desperate. Um, but it does raise questions about whether or not you know he did these play to play quid pro quo votes in the past, and um, I think it you know it has the potential to. I think. The senator, former senator, uh, did not want to go to trial, but Shrimp Boy and about two dozen other defendants could. So we might see more dirt come out. That's my prediction. It's just such a uh, an interesting thing, though. I mean, to your point about you know these these um, criticisms from from uh, the defense teams that you know basically kind of smack of entrapment. That's almost what you're saying there mm-hmm. is that like yeah. you know someone wouldn't have done this had they not been snared or lured into it. And we're going to see some of that same dynamic play out in the in the saga of Ron Calderon, which will play out now uh, much later. There have been delays in that case, uh, completely separate case, as the podcast audience knows, but from Southern California. But at the same time, uh, you do see, even in some of the transcripts out of both of those cases, and in the E case too, you see legislators who know that there's a line, and they even kind of talk about there's a line, mm-hmm. but, it, but, but yet they still do it. I mean, at a certain point, people, people do what people do, even... If I mean, you know, some people will walk away if they're so inclined. I mean, it's I, I find it a hard one. And maybe I'm just looking in the court of public opinion because I'm not a lawyer. But it's a hard one to, like, convince somebody that, like, somebody made me do that, even though I knew that I wasn't supposed to do it. Yeah. And I think this speaks to a lot of sort of deeper, darker, you know, feelings that the public has about the political system and our politicians and, you know, whether there it is such in a, in a weird way, this gray line. Right. About if you can't you can take campaign contributions from somebody who benefits from your votes, but you can't do it because of that. You know, it's right. like even even if it's on the up and up, which clearly these contributions were not. Um, yeah. And I think you've seen that in Sacramento, this huge rush, especially after you was arrested to distance themselves from him. And, you know, former pro Tem Steinberg talking about how this taints all of us. Um, 
But it is. I mean, that indictment was one of the more entertaining things I've ever read, I got to say. And that's saying something for a court document. That was, that was yes. Both of those, and, when, and along with the Calderon affidavit. That yeah. Was, this was some uh, good political literature. So don't worry, guys. <laughs> the Calderon thing still could go to trial. So we, we got time. There's more to talk about. For, for more to see, yeah. I mean, but it'll be interesting, too, I think, also to see kind of what he gets sentenced to. And, and to your point, Marisa, right, does something else fall out of this whole thing? But, um, you know, stay tuned, as we always say. So look at that, guys. That was a chock full of week. I mean, that's a lot of stuff to mull. We just want to make weekend. sure as people are traveling to their Fourth of July plans that they have something to do in the car. Because I'm sure everyone's <laughs> kids will be so interested. <laughs> Yeah, like mine, who yell if there's talking coming out of the radio. But <laughs> I used to do that. Now I work for you know a radio station, so you'll you'll be able to change it. Strange things happen. That's uh, Marisa Lagos from KQED News, along with Anthony York from the Grizzly Bear Project. I'm John Myers from KQED. As always, we appreciate you listening to this California Politics Podcast. See you next time.